Hey, my friend, this is Joe Bakmotsky and welcome to the Simplify Cancer podcast. Listen, it seems like everyone knows about mindfulness, but how do you actually put it into practice? Especially if you're busy and you have just problems on your own that you got to deal with in your life after cancer. Well, listen, we got you covered with Dr. Ronald Siegel, who we talking to today. He's a clinical psychologist, he's a mindfulness researcher, and he's also the author of the brilliant book, The Mindfulness Solution. Listen, you're in for the real treat here, so I hope you enjoy it. Ronald, thank you so much for being here. I've been really looking forward to talk to you about mindfulness. So welcome to the show, Ron. So what about mindfulness in terms of helping you when you're coming from a place where you are struggling. You're, you're, you've, you've been through a lot. Maybe you've been through disease. Maybe you suffered in some way through conflict, through you know, through losing a job or having your business struggle. How can you get yourself to a place where mindfulness can be a tool that really helps you? We are always, always thinking about the future, always strategizing, and very often coming up with worries and you know awful lot of anxiety or depression is either worrying what's going to happen in the future or being upset having a imagining that the future is never going to be any good or feeling bad about something we did in the past and feeling that people aren't going to like us so this constant thinking 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 uh, creates untold difficulty uh, just to illustrate this um <clears throat> you know tr if you would uh, try this out yourself joe and our listeners can try it out you know, think of something right now that upsets you. Not, it doesn't have to be the worst thing ever, but something that's been upsetting. And here and now, in this moment, if it weren't for the thought of the thing, would you be having a problem? No. No, it's the thought of it. Even if we're in pain right now, it's usually the thought that it's going to endure for a long time that makes us upset because we can take pain for short periods of time. We're recording this during the pandemic and I got recently vaccinated and the, you know, what's the nurse saying to everybody? This is gonna pinch just for a bit <laughs> or your arm will be sore, but only for a day. If we know it's time limited, we're okay with pain. So we really see that this combination of this fight or flight system combined with, we're very useful for survival, very central to our brains, combined with this capacity to think, which frankly, we can't turn off. It was such a good survival mechanism that we are always, always thinking. Creates an awful lot of suffering. And there's one more factor that I'll, I'll add into the mix, and then, then we can talk about how mindfulness can help with these things. The other factor is we seem to be extremely preoccupied with ourselves and how we compare to others. I'll give you a little story about this. Uh, there is a, um, a stress physiologist at Stanford University uh, here in the States called uh, named Robert Sapolsky. And uh, he was being interviewed on the radio by a journalist uh, and describing his life's work, which was essentially hiding behind blinds of vegetation, the African savanna, watching baboon troops, waiting for particularly juicy soap opera interactions, shooting anesthetic darts at all the baboons, anesthetizing them, drawing blood, and trying to understand something about stress. So the interviewer was asking him, well, what did you discover? So the first thing we discovered is it's really hard to anesthetize a troop of baboons without screwing up their stress hormones. 
one could imagine that to be the case. Somehow they got past that hurdle. Said anything else stand out? Well, the next thing we realize is the stress physiology is super complicated. It's not just about adrenaline. There's hundreds of hormones. It's 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 complicated. The journalist, you know, wanting to have a good story, said, "Well, is there anything in particular that stood out out of all that complexity?" And Dr. Sapolsky said, "Yes, there is one finding." which is absolutely robust. We see it again and again, not just in baboons, but in all sorts of primates. What's that? It turns out that it is very bad for your health to, low, to be a low-ranking male in a baboon troop. Now, we may think as the smart monkeys that this doesn't apply to us, but this shows up every time we make a comparison between ourselves and someone else. It shows up in our fluctuating levels of self-esteem. Just think about it. How often do you have a thought of, Am I smart enough? Am I successful enough? Am I attractive enough? Am I kind enough? Am I generous enough? All these thoughts, when we're having these doubts about ourselves, and we all have these doubts, we're making an implicit comparison. We're either comparing ourselves to others who we know, or we're comparing ourselves to some internalized ideal we have of who we're supposed to be, but we're always trying to figure out if we measure up. And we, of course, feel great when we feel like a winner, and we feel horrible when we feel like a loser, and we very easily get addicted to winning. I mean, this is why people spend countless hours, you know, hoping to get likes for their posts on social media, you know? Oh yeah, I got a thumb. Yay, people like me. And we, we get this little, it's a, it's a squirt of dopamine in the nucleus accumbens of our brains. And we feel great for a couple of moments until it wears off and we need another hit. So this too was very important for survival because those primates that ranked higher in their troop they had access to more resources. They had access to more reproductively promising men or women this evolved in a heterosexual context. And as a result, their kids got to, got to uh, survive uh, more readily. So all of these things that, that were all mechanisms for, of how the brain evolved leave us, how do they leave us? They leave us stressed out because we're, our fight or flight system is activated repeatedly, caught in these endless thoughts, you know, including a lot of thoughts about what can go wrong in the future and a lot of upset about that, and always worrying about how we're doing and only occasionally feeling like we're doing okay, much of the time being afraid that we're not doing okay. After all, when you, you know, look at somebody's Facebook or Instagram post, you don't often see, woke up this morning, had the runs, I think my girlfriend's going to leave me and I'm going to get a bad performance review at work. No, it's here I am having a fabulous vacation, in your case, uh, perhaps, you know, up in Cairns for somebody else. It's in the Caribbean here, you know, and, and people are showing off their, you know, their wonderful experiences, right? And, uh, and everybody's feeling inadequate, seeing, seeing this in, in others. So mindfulness practice has actually evolved cross-culturally to deal with all of this, to be an antidote to all of this. So how do they work as an antidote? Well, it's actually remarkably simple. For one thing, whenever we're practicing mindfulness, we're bringing our attention over and over back to some sensory experience in the present moment. It might be the feeling of the breath coming in and out of the lungs or in and out of the nostrils. It might be the feeling of the feet on the ground if you're doing walking meditation, for example. It might be tasting food if you're doing an eating meditation, but we're bringing it out of the thought stream and to the moment-to-moment -moment sensory experience of this moment. 
you do that enough and you do it often enough, you start to step out of the thought stream and be with reality in a different way. You move out of what psychologists call narrative reality into experiential reality, where you're not living in your stories anymore, or not only living in your stories, but you're actually tasting, feeling, and touching the present moment. And that becomes enormously relieving because as, as you know, you pointed out in that little exercise before, it's our thoughts that are driving us crazy. It's our thoughts that keep us upset all the time. The other thing is that the, our fight or flight system is not about the present moment. Like think of something that makes you anxious. Shouldn't take long. Yep, got it. Yeah, absolutely. Got it? Okay. Now is the thing that's making you anxious the past, the present, or the future? It's the future. <laughs> it's the future. Sometimes people say I'm anxious about the past, but if you if you dig in a little bit more deeply, you realize the person saying, well, I'm anxious about what I did this morning because I'm afraid that I'm <laughs> going to be incarcerated this evening. You know, it's it's not actually this morning, it's the consequences of this morning that that get our attention. So you know, once we realize that, the other thing mindfulness practices are doing is they're constantly bringing our attention back to the present. Being in the present is the antidote to all of this future-oriented thought, worry, and concern. It grounds us in the here and now. And I've been doing meditations, for example, again, we're recording this during the pandemic, and a very nice and, and simple one is simply to begin paying attention to the breath or another object of awareness, and then to add in, you know, the future is uncertain, but here and now I'm safe. I don't know how long it's gonna to take to get a vaccine, but here and now I'm safe. I don't know what's gonna happen economically, but here and now I'm safe. Just again and again, coming back to the present because when we're really here and now, we're much safer. And the third really big thing that mindfulness practices do, and this is, this is usually people only start to discover this if they take up the practices more seriously and get a little bit more um, advanced and committed. These practices were designed in many cultural contexts to help us get over ourselves, to help us not be so preoccupied, and particularly to not be so preoccupied with things like self-esteem or how we rank compared to others or how well we're doing. Um, when you start to bring your attention back into the present, you start to appreciate very simple things. The taste of a piece of fruit, the appearance of the sunset, the feeling of the air when a gentle breeze comes up. These very simple things that, that, that are not about competitive success. They're not about being better or worse than anybody or living up to some ideal. They're simply about being alive as a human organism. We start to actually notice these things and appreciate these things. And out of that comes a kind of natural gratitude for this experience. And that nat natural gratitude is a wonderful antidote to self-preoccupation. We, we get, we, we wind up basically enjoying being very ordinary. Um, I, I, um, uh, I've just finished uh, a book about this and we were going back and forth, you know, with the publisher about the title and they eventually chose uh, The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary. <laughs> what a great name. 
that you know when when we actually get over ourselves and aren't trying to prove ourselves so much but can just appreciate what it is to be a human being things go so much better the other thing that happens when we get over ourselves this way is we can become much more connected to other people and it's the simple friendships help us so much. We all know when we're talking to a good friend, if we're able to be honest with them, that all these concerns about how I'm doing, they start to fall away, right? We start to relax. We start to feel like we're part of a we. It's not me and you and, oh, you have more than I do or your job's better than mine or, or um, your girlfriend or boyfriend is better than mine. It's, it, you know, that stuff starts to fall away and we start to feel like we're in this together. And that's an enormous relief. And, and we know from all sorts of studies, um, uh, one in particular, there's something called the, um, uh, the Harvard study of adult development. I'm, I'm here associated with Harvard Medical School. And the, um, the uh, psychiatrist who's running the study is actually a wonderful guy. He's a friend of mine. He's, he's both a, a Zen priest and a psychoanalyst and a researcher running the study. Uh, his name is uh, Bob or Robert Waldinger, and uh, excuse me, and uh, Bob actually has a TED talk about this that you can Google, and uh, he's basically asked, so what do we know from this study? This study has been following a group of Harvard undergraduates since 1938, and trying to figure out what are the factors that have made them live long, what are the factors that have made them happy, and what are the factors that are basically good for physical and mental health? And he says, the jury is in, we know. It's the quality of our relationships. If we feel like we have connected relationships with other people, they don't have to be harmonious all the time. We don't have to be you know, singing Kumbaya. We just, have to, we just have to feel like I can trust this person. This is a friend, I can trust this person. They, they could be your, your spouse or your romantic partner or just a friend or another family member. Having those trusting relationships is enormously important. Mindfulness practices help us to develop those relationships. It comes as a surprise to some people because they think, well, isn't mindfulness about kind of sitting quietly by yourself? And it is in terms of facing your feelings, getting in touch with what's really happening and being in the moment. But one of the things that happens is we develop a capacity to really be with feelings to not be afraid of sadness, to not be afraid even of anger, to not be afraid of fear, but to be able to feel all of these feelings as they come and go in the heart and mind. And being able to feel our feelings and not run from them is actually a, a super important resource for being able to have good relationships. Because if you think about what goes wrong in relationships, it's almost always we hurt each other's feelings, often somebody makes somebody feel put down or inadequate. It's often about that other problem I was talking about. But we hurt each other's feelings and then we, you know, we blow up in anger or we withdraw or something goes wrong that way. If we're able to tolerate our feelings and able to step back from our thoughts a little bit, we're able to say, okay, so this, you know, this is making me feel angry at the moment. I don't have to lash out. I can just start to communicate. You know, I, I didn't like it when you said that. It, you know, it, it hurt my feelings or, something like that, we can get in touch with our vulnerability. And this, this then allows us to sustain relationships and have them be deeper and closer. And that helps us also to, um, to have well-being. So it turns out that these very simple practices that are really just about coming back to the present, being with what's happening in the body, 
directing the attention out of the thought stream and practicing opening to whatever's happening can be helpful for a, a very wide range of difficulties because they're, they're a basic antidote to all of the ways that our brains evolved for survival, but not for happiness. Yeah, absolutely. Ron. And it's, it's just so powerful the way that you talk about how, I mean, mindfulness, it helps you to really get over yourself. And I know I still need to do that at times more often than not, actually. But it's, it's, it's something that helps you to get over your worries and fears, but in a way to also experience these emotions, like you just said, in a in kind of much more direct way, in a much more kind of honest way, where you can, where you can kind of let them go. Is, is that part of it? Yes, absolutely. We can do a little experiment right now. Just, just I invite you and our listeners, if if our listeners aren't like driving a car or something, um, you know, close your eyes for a moment and just generate a little bit of a feeling of sadness. Not the saddest thing ever, but just a little feeling of sadness. And if you would just place your hand on the part of your body where you feel the sadness, where do you feel the sensation of sadness in the body? And just breathe with that a little bit. And then generate a little bit of fear. Again, not the scariest thing ever, but just something that makes you a little anxious or fearful. And place your hand over the part of the body where you feel that. And just breathe with that a little bit. And then let's try anger or annoyance. Let yourself feel a little bit annoyed or angry. If you're a nice person and you don't easily get angry, just think of somebody in the opposite political party. That'll help. <laughs> and just feel a little bit of anger. And place your hand over the part of your body where you feel that. And finally, generate a little bit of joy. Feel that in the body and place your hand where you feel that. And you can open your eyes again. But you notice that all of these emotions, they're fundamentally bodily sensations. They're bodily sensations accompanied usually by either a thought or an image. And the more we practice mindfulness, the more we get to feel emotions as just these events in the body. And if we can feel them as vents in the body, then we can simply be with them. They're like any other sensation. And once we learn to open to sensations in this way, we don't have to fear them so much. And if you could imagine a life where you weren't afraid of sadness, you weren't afraid of fear or anxiety, you weren't afraid of anger, that mm, these were just sensations and you could open to them and you could ride them out and they wouldn't last forever, but they would come and go like clouds in the sky we'd be free, right? Because everything that constricts our lives, all the things we desperately hold on to and the things we push away from, they're all attempts to hold on to positive emotions and push away negative ones. 
But if we're really practicing mindfulness a bunch and, and getting used to this idea that it all comes and goes and we can allow it to come and go, then we're quite free and quite flexible. We can be quite heroic then. We can take risks because the worst that can happen is I'm going to be disappointed. I might feel like a failure. I might feel rejected. But if I trust that I can feel those feelings, then I'm going to be so much better off. And one component of mindfulness, which is getting a lot more attention lately, is uh, compassion, uh, compassion for ourselves. That Because mindfulness, I guess I should have defined it at the outset here. I'm assuming our listeners are somewhat familiar with it. But mindfulness is basically an attitude toward experience. It's about awareness of present experience with loving acceptance, with compassionate acceptance. You know, I, I sometimes in, in teaching about this aspect of mindfulness, um, I'll ask people, we can try this. Uh, imagine a, a really cute puppy. Just make call to mind an image of a really cute, adorable puppy, okay? And notice how you feel looking at that adorable puppy in your mind's eye. And I'm gonna guess that your attitude is not one of harsh critical judgment, but it's something closer to the, the sort of universal sign of, or sound of compassion, something like, oh, right? Now, even if that puppy were to pee and poop at the wrong time or the wrong place or wasn't listening to instructions, we'd be thinking, well, he's young, he needs training, he needs love. Those of you who have practiced mindfulness know that the mind does pee and poop at the wrong time in <laughs> the wrong place, and it does not listen to instructions. And we want to generate that same kind of loving, accepting attitude toward that, and toward our minds and toward our hearts. And when we can generate this kind of loving attitude toward our experience, that makes it so much easier to be with pain because we, we feel like we're, we're kind of held in that moment. The same way when we're with pain, if we have a caring friend and they give us a hug, we feel better. We can do that for ourselves a bit uh, in mindfulness practice. And that too helps us to have the courage to live freely in the world and to feel whatever ups and downs might occur. Yeah, that's so powerful, Ron, like this idea of, of just accepting yourself uh, because of, of, you know, of all those feelings like, you know, we're not enough or we've made mistakes or we've done things that, you know, uh, we've done things maybe that we regret, again, things that in the past or worried about the future. And, and that's such a powerful component of mindfulness and should be a component of our lives and being effectively, I think what you're saying really is being more kind to yourself. So how do you cultivate this acceptance through mindfulness? How, how do you do that? Well, when you're actually sitting in mindfulness practice, and there, there are many different kinds, and I, I'll give a resource if you want. There's a, uh, my website, which is drronsiegel.com. Uh, perhaps you can put it out with the podcast. Um, that uh, you'll see all sorts of meditations there. You can download them for free. Uh, but all of them have in common, just starting with a sensory object, let's say it's the breath, and simply feeling the sensations of the breath, feeling the in-breath and feeling the out-breath, staying with it the best that we can. And when the mind wanders off, which it inevitably will, just gently bringing the attention back, just gently over and over coming back. And we see doing this very simple exercise that all sorts of mental contents come and go. Pleasant images and feelings come and go. Unpleasant images and feelings come and go. And what we do is we practice, we practice loving acceptance toward them all, just allowing 
them all to keep coming, keep coming and going. And it's this attitude of acceptance or uh, in its strongest form is an attitude of surrender where we really say, you know, it's okay. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to try to control this. We can control things in our lives. This isn't about being passive in our lives, but it's about not trying to control our experience. In other words, allowing whatever thought or feeling arises in the mind and in the heart to come and go freely. And the more we do that, the more we start to develop this generally non-judgmental accepting attitude. Uh, we, it's the practice of mindfulness becomes like puppy training, uh, trying to be sweet to ourselves as pleasant and unpleasant uh, experiences arise and, and pass. Now, this might come, come across weird, Ron, but what should you realistically aim for when it comes to mindfulness, to be kind of in this state where, you know, you can you kind of have this, you know, direct experience where you're not in your head. I mean, how much of it is it is realistic to have in your kind of day-to-day -day life? Well, it really depends. You know, mindfulness practices are extremely dose-related. So if you, you know, if you do a little bit of practice, maybe 10 minutes a day, you'll develop a little bit of mindfulness and you'll, you'll notice that you're a little bit more present, a little bit better able to taste your food, maybe a little bit better able to hang out with emotions without fighting them. But if you up the dosage a little bit, do 20 minutes a day or 30 minutes a day or two sessions of 15 minutes a day, something like that, you'll start to notice, oh, there's more carryover effect. You do longer than that, you'll have even more carryover effect. It's also very helpful to do what we call informal mindfulness practices which are things we can do during the course of normal life. So if you're walking your dog, for example, instead of listening to music or talking to somebody on the phone or you know, looking at your Instagram feed, try just feeling the feet on the ground. Just try noticing each step and as much as possible, bring the attention out of the thought stream back to the present moment. If you're taking a shower, for example, you know, a shower, if you live in the developed world, is a potentially very rich sensual experience, right? The, uh, you get to adjust the temperature just so. It's like a Goldilocks experience. Oh, that's a little too cold. That's a little <laughs> bit too warm. Ah, that's just right, right? And um, unless you're very culturally conservative, you're probably naked in the shower, right? So there are, so there are thousands of droplets caressing your naked body. Um, you probably have soap that might even have a fragrance to it. I've, I do a lot of traveling and teaching and I'm fond of the names of the uh, hotel soaps. Uh, one was called Jasmine Zen <laughs> and the other, the other was called Buddha Calm. I, I collect these names. And you know, so you're using this all over your body, including sensitive private parts. This is potentially a very rich central experience if we show up to it, if we make it a mindfulness practice. You gotta take the shower anyway, might as well make it a mindfulness practice. Um, if you don't though deliberately redirect attention, then I find it's quite easy to get to the end of the shower and think, did I wash my hair or was that yesterday? Because <laughs> I because I spent the entire shower going through my to-do list or rehearsing, you know, a conversation that I had before getting in. The, you know, it's it's quite possible to spend our entire lives just lost in the thought stream, but we can practice this and we can do it, but with some formal sitting practice. Again, if you go to drronsiegel.com, you can um, see resources to do that. I also have a book called The Mindfulness Solution, Everyday Practices for Everyday Problems, which will give you guidance about which practices to use when. So we can do, we can do that. 
Um, and we can do these informal practices uh, during periods during the rest of our day. So what happens is over time, we just develop a general intention to be present to our experience and to whenever it works to do so, to drop below the thought stream, to come back to this moment here and now, what's happening on a sensory level and increasingly becomes a habit. Now, do we become fully enlightened beings after you know, a couple of weeks of this? Not likely, you know? <laughs> Have I after decades of this? Nope. <laughs> um, but um, but you know I'm you know I I can see very direct effects when I practice regularly. I clearly have more moments of relative sanity in my life. When I practice less regularly, I have decidedly fewer moments of sanity in my life. The correlation is quite easy to see, and. Uh, so this stuff works, uh, you know, this isn't a scientific presentation, but there are, uh, you know, literally now thousands of research studies showing that mindfulness practice changes the brain in desirable directions. It both change, changes brain function, in other words, how the brain operates, the software, if you will, and it changes brain structure, the hardware, if you will, over time because the brain is constantly evolving. And it does this in directions that are quite positive. And we know from countless clinical studies that it helps with anxiety, with depression, with um, interpersonal difficulties, with, uh, with substance use disorders. It can help in so many ways uh, in just towards sanity. Yeah, wow, well, Ron. And you know, it makes me think of, you know, when I was, when I was going through my cancer treatment, and uh, I remember like just being so overwhelmed by but just emotions and worries and what's going to happen. I mean, it's this thing you're going to work. You know, am I going to die and what, what's going to happen? And I remember that it, in that moment, it also, um, I just thought, well, what if today was my last day alive? What if this was kind of my last day on this earth? And you know what? All of those worries, all of those concerns, it all kind of just went away. And I, and I now kind of ask myself this question and it kind of brings me back into, <laughs> I guess, into reality of just being here today. Uh, is that also like, uh, I guess, a, a, gate for, a gateway into, into mindfulness? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I once visited a, um, a Buddhist temple in uh, Thailand. It was uh, Wat Tam Sua. It's uh, the tiger cave temple. And uh, there they have like in glass cases, real human skeletons, and they have real human skulls around. And the idea was that the monks were supposed to live each day as though it were their last, to actually appreciate this meal, actually appreciate this sunrise and this sunset, which is all about bringing the attention back to the present with appreciation. And um, uh, Judith Faust is the uh, was one of the past presidents of of Harvard University here where I live, and uh, she was a Civil War historian. And the, the American Civil War was horrible. More people died in that war than in all the rest of our wars combined. So Do Dr. Faust uh, pointed out that during the American Civil War, death was so ubiquitous that it became a kind of cultural expectation that you should think about death every day in order to appreciate your life, in order to notice this moment, this interaction, this simple thing, this flower, whatever it might be. 
And uh, mindfulness practices absolutely help us to do that because by training the, the brain to step out of the thought stream and come back to moment to moment reality, you just feel it with so much more vividness. If, um, if our listeners try, say, one of the 30-minute meditations that are uh, that are on my website, you'll see after just 30 minutes of practice, if you look around the room, everything's more vivid. Colors are more vivid. Uh, sensations on, of touch in the body is more vivid. It doesn't take much. As soon as we start to reorient, our, reorient ourselves out of the thought stream, into sensory reality for sensory reality to become so much clearer to us. Yaron, and it's and it's to me, I find this whole idea one of the one of the things that you said that struck me so much, which I find honestly shocking, is that this idea is that we shouldn't be chasing, chasing the experience of constantly you know, getting more good things to happen and experiencing more good things and just kind of pushing away the negative, but rather just letting ourselves experience everything and that is what actually brings us uh to a point where we feel more alive yeah that, that's exactly how it works there have been many many studies that show that people who can experience the full range of emotions have much more well-being they're not always happy in the sense of being high or joyous but they have access to that fully when it happens. When good things happen, they get to really feel it. When bad things happen, they get to really cry. And the, the critical thing is that we don't get stuck in emotions. What, when we look at human psychological suffering, and uh, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist by training, so I work and I do psychotherapy with, with patients. When we look at human psychological suffering, Suffering is not about the fact that sometimes we experience painful emotions. Suffering is about getting stuck in painful emotions, having them not change as all other things change. And the thing that gets us stuck in them is trying to stop them. That as we, it's, it's often said in my field, whatever we resist persists. So if you try to stop it, you're going to be stuck with it. Uh, the, a simple example we can do right now is let me ask you and our listeners to not think of a flying elephant. <laughs> Just don't think of a flying elephant. And I'm sure your mind is going to be filled with winged pachyderms, right? This is just what happens to us. Uh, it's just very basic in, in the way that human psychology works. So what mindfulness practices are doing instead is they're really opening to whatever arises the joyous, the difficulty um, in Buddhist traditions from which many mindfulness practices come, they talk about embracing the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. Uh, and the more we can do that, the more we appreciate this moment. And you know, as you're acutely aware, having, uh, you know, having experienced cancer, life is a series of moments. I mean, that is what this is. It's not, I mean, you know, people can speculate about what might happen after the body dies, but certainly while we're here on earth, it's a series of moments of consciousness. So how we manage those is going to be critically important. There's a great Tibetan saying about this, uh, says that uh, looking for happiness by trying to arrange our external circumstances just so, to be just to our liking, is a lot like looking for sunshine in a north-facing cave. <laughs> you know, we keep trying, 
but it really it really doesn't work for us and the sooner we get it that no it's about opening to experience and being present and being here it's not about you know rigging everything so that it's it's you know it's so that it's perfectly to our liking um because when we're struggling to do that we're we're always unhappy the mind is always complaining yeah exactly and and like you point out ron like there's so much suffering comes from just being stuck in particular emotions and we are, when we're able to move on we're able to live our lives fully and we're able to yeah be more accepting of ourselves of who we are as people ron thank you so much for your time and for sharing these beautiful insights on mindfulness you're welcome thanks so much for your podcast for sharing your experience over time with people on your podcast and uh, and for inviting me to participate Hey, my friend, this is Joe Bakmutsky, host of the Simplify Cancer podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, because I know that this is an especially crazy time for all of us. And if you're struggling a little bit right now with the lockdown, with the COVID-19 pandemic, then I, I, I urge you to check out my 14-day lockdown challenge, how to stay sane, steady, and strong in the time of pandemic. You know, each day I'm sharing what I've really learned from cancer about dealing with isolation, with worry and fear. And each day we're going to tackle a different topic. So if that sounds interesting to you, then go to 14day, that's one for 14daylockdownchallenge.com. Also, if you're a cancer patient who's going through, you know, potential cancer treatment right now, then I urge you to go to simplifycancer.com and check out some of the free tools that I've created to kind of help you out along the way. If you go to simplifycancer.com to the tools section, you're going to find out the outcome map, which just shows you how to really work through specific worries, like a milestones, like, like a checkup, or maybe some specific symptoms that you've got, like an ache or a pain. You're going to figure out what to do next. It's a really simple tool that can help you to really work through that. There's also online community guide, which is how to really find the top three online communities for most cancer. So you can really check in with people who've been through it before, like connect with them, ask questions. They're going to be there for you because they know exactly what it's like. You know what to expect from treatment and beyond. Also, I've got a PDF called your first oncologist visit checklist. And here I've got all the questions that you want to be asking your specialist. So you can just print it out and take it with you. There's room to make notes. And also make sure that you can kind of prompt the conversation and make sure that you really don't forget. The other thing I've got for you is the testicular cancer support kit. I've done a whole bunch of videos for you on the things that you can really you know, find out about dealing with testicular cancer from the perspective of someone who's been through it. This is not medical advice. This is just from my personal experience of dealing with cancer, things that, questions that you might have about fertility, about having sex, all of that sort of stuff, like how does it feel, different kind of things that can help you and guide you along the way and hopefully make your journey easier. So check that out as well. And speaking of my experience, you might also want to check out <laughs> Simplify Cancer, Man's Guide to Navigating the Everyday Reality of Cancer. This is the book 
that I wrote talking about the four main challenges that all of us guys must overcome when we're dealing with cancer. If you're interested in seeing what that's all about, go to simplifycancer.com. The links are pretty much <laughs> everywhere on the website. And you know, I'll tell you more about it. Other than that, thanks so much for tuning in. I'll talk to you next time.